Good evening. It's my privilege to welcome you to the second presentation in the 52nd annual Barton Clinton Gordy Lecture Series. For those of you who might be with us for the first time, or for those of you who might be new to the church, let me give you a few brief facts about the lecture series. <clears throat> you can read it online, you can read it on our website, you can read it in all the printed material, but let me refresh your memory for just a quick second. This series was established in 1963 in honor of Dr. L.S. Barton. Uh, Dr. Barton was a noted preacher in Methodism and was the first district superintendent for this district. He also, his first appointment was to Boston Avenue in 1914. He was involved deeply in the building committee that helped plan this great structure. In 1987, the family of Dr. Fred Clinton, who was a pioneer surgeon and physician in Indian Territory, decided to add to the corpus in honor of Dr. Clinton. Dr. Clinton was the one who established the first branch of the American Red Cross in Indian Territory in 1897. And he also established the first accredited hospital in the city of Tulsa. Then in 2001, uh, the estate of I.V. and Bonna Gordy decided to add to the corpus to give us even more breadth and depth to who we could invite to the, to the uh, series. I.V. Gordy was a member of this church for over 50 years. He was a goodwill ambassador for this great chancel choir. And his wife, uh, Bonna, was uh, a math teacher. Uh, of noted profession, professional in the math industry. She taught me in 1951 in eighth grade algebra. That lasted two or three years. <laughs> 51 did over and over and over again. But even in spite of that, uh, Ms. Gordy was awarded with uh, recognition of being Oklahoma Teacher of the Year in 1956. So in spite of what I did to her, well, she was able to make it. So through the foresight and and willingness of these families. Each year we're able to bring you some great scholars, some great pastors, some rabbis, some lecturers, some clinicians, some academian to help us broaden our, our uh, depth about Christianity. It doesn't happen easily. Uh, the committee works hard. The committee takes two or three years out in advance to get a speaker. We can't get speakers like Bishop Bickerton by just calling and asking him to come the next day. So we're two or three years out on that. The committee members are Jerry and Nancy Hudson. I see Jerry and Nancy right there. Jerry, will you all stand? Uh, Pam and Terry Carter. I don't see Pam. They were out of town, but they'll be with us. And my wife, Marilyn, and myself. And we're assisted in that with our senior minister, uh, David Wiggs. And this particular series, we were assisted by our former pastor, Dr. Muzan Biggs. Uh, as Dr. Biggs has often reminded us, one of the most important parts of this lecture series is the receptions following the service. <laughs> and so uh, we entrust that uh, a chore to our church administrator, Brenda Reed. I think I see Brenda right out there. Brenda, will you stand? There, she's back here in the back. Brenda, make sure that we have plenty of cookies. That, that's, not an easy, that's not an easy task. This congregation can eat a lot of cookies. And of course, this series has a dimension to it that most series don't have, and that is the great music that we have. Every year, Dr. Joe Pansera comes to us with something new and different. As we did this year, we sang two or three different new hymns. He's trying to broaden us out a little bit, so we sing a little bit different than what we always sing. Some of these that he brings to us are wonderful. Some of them never sing again. I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry, Joe. 
and to Dr. Susan Pansera, we owe a special debt of gratitude because our organ has been down, as all of you know, uh, for the past five or six weeks, and she leaned on the electricians and the organ uh, uh, repair people to get it done for tonight, so we're back with our organ. So, Susan, thank you for that. And of course, we couldn't do this without the Chancel Choir. The Chancel Choir is here for all of the performances in total, uh, singing every performance. So let's give them a big hand. And now for tonight's speaker, Dr. Thomas, or Bishop Thomas Bickerton. He's a dynamic and popular speaker. He leads nearly 830 congregations in the Western Pennsylvania Annual Conference. In addition, he chairs the United Methodist Churches Global Health Initiative. He currently serves as a member of the General Commission on the United Methodist Men and sits on the Board of Trustees for Allegheny College and West Virginia Wesleyan College. He's a native of West Virginia, holds bachelor's degrees in sociology and psychology from West Virginia Wesleyan College and a Master of Divinity from the Duke University Divinity School and a Doctor of Ministry from Union Theological School. One of his current passions is the uh, net, there's the Imagine No Malaria, which he is working on for the United Methodist Church. He's our representative to that. Uh, he'll tell you more about that it's in conjunction with the NBA players and also with uh, the Gates Foundation. So you feel free to ask him questions about that. It's a real passion for him, and that's a real, really important initiative. He's married, has four children, uh, gave us a little rundown on his kids today. Uh, they're all quite accomplished, so as you would expect. So as you know, every year I read you these accomplishments, and I think uh, we need to know something more about the guy. We need to know something that makes him down at the same level we are rather than just read his accomplishments. <laughs> we, we, we know he's notable. We heard him we, like that. But so I thought to myself when I first saw him, he's 6'7". He's got to be a basketball player. And I looked, and he went to Duke. So I began to look, bound to, bound to have been some sort of performance there at some of those. I couldn't find it. So I asked him, I said, you played basketball? And he said, no, I'm too clumsy to play basketball. I said, so you do anything else? And he said, well, I'm a pretty good baseball player. And I said, is that right? And he said, yeah. He said, I throw a pretty good heater. Uh, he said, in Pennsylvania, in order to be a good Methodist, you also have to support the Pennsylvania, I mean, the uh, Pittsburgh Penguins, the Pittsburgh Pirates, and the Pittsburgh Steelers. And so he said, I do all of those. And he said, I've even been invited to throw out the opening pitch, uh, or the first pitch on the opening day at the Pittsburgh Pirates two or three times. And I said, my, that's amazing. And he said, one time I even asked my father to be the catcher. Now, how about that? I also asked him, I said, okay, that's great. What else do you do? He said, I like music. And I said, what kind of music? He said, classical and country western. <laughs> and I thought, he's more Oklahoman than he knows. You know that? <laughs> I said, have you got a favorite performer in the country western? He said, one of my very best friends, another West Virginia native, uh, Brad Paisley. So how about that? So tonight you're going to get to hear him make his second presentation uh, entitled Faith. As soon as the choir sings an anthem and the choir comes down to sit in the congregation, then you'll hear Bishop Thomas Bickerton. Well, uh, my heart is kind of full this evening, and so I need to, need to spill it out just a little bit before we go uh, too deep into our time. I, um, 
Uh, Phil, your uh, your introduction kind of intimidated me. This introduction of of scholars and academicians and all that sort of thing, and I I sat here thinking, well, wh where where is he? Uh, I um, uh, Bill and I uh, were blessed when we were at Duke Divinity School to have a resident bishop on board at Duke, and his name was W. Kenneth Goodson, and Bishop Goodson was my mentor in uh, in ministry i learned more from him than anybody and uh, i would just sit at his feet constantly trying to integrate what i was trying to learn in an academic setting with how that applies in a practical setting and uh, <clears throat> bishop goodson was uh, so popular in eastern north carolina he was invited all over the place and he would um, he would uh, engage some of us students to take him to places and so we'd, uh, we'd go off, and he'd take a student to sing and, and someone to read Scripture and someone to drive him. And it was always a thrill. And I remember one time taking him to uh, a, a small college in eastern North Carolina uh, for a series, and they gave a very similar introduction about an academician and a, 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 you know, an educated person. And, and Bishop Goodson nodded his head, and he stood up, and he said, I have no idea where that person is, but we're going to go to church tonight. What do you say? And, and what do you say, we, we talk church, and better yet, what do you say, we just, we preach and encounter the Word of God for a while. And I always resonated with that because I think, really, in, in terms of the complex world in which we live, um, isn't it good to go to church? Isn't it good to come into the heart of God? Isn't it good just to be together? And there's something sufficient about that. Uh, that we're in the presence of God and we're blessed with one another's company. There's just something all right about that. I, uh, I love Sunday night. In the Bickerton household, you went to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. There were no options. That was the deal. Uh, as a kid, um, I must say I didn't like Sunday night so very much because uh, at 7 o'clock on Sunday night, it was the wonderful world of Disney. And at 6.30, it was Woody Woodpecker, and I always had to miss the last part of Woody Woodpecker, and I missed uh, Wonderful World of Disney on Sunday nights. I just wanted to stay home. But there was a thing called church, and we went. And I uh, can't tell you that I always enjoyed being there on Sunday nights. In fact, uh, the times that I despised most on Sunday nights was when the pastor was gone, and the lay leader would preach i hated it <laughs> not because he wasn't a good speaker but uh charlie ray was the lay leader of that church and whenever he was the speaker on sunday night it was charlie ray's passion to uh, get me to pray in public at some point during a sunday night service when charlie ray was the speaker for the evening he would say at some point, now we're going to ask little Tommy Bickerton to pray for us <laughs> as, a, as an 8 or 9 or 10-year-old kid. And so when I'd walk in and see that Reverend Mason or Reverend Turley was gone, I just went into crisis mode. <laughs> I, I mean, I would fake illnesses. I, I would hide under the pew. I would, I would fake being asleep. But at some point during the service, Charlie Ray would say, we're going to ask little Tommy Bickerton if he'd pray for us. I hated Charlie Ray. 
1998, I was invited by Bishop F. S. Clifton Ives to return to the northern panhandle of West Virginia to become the district superintendent of my home district. The very first thing I did when I got there, before the van was even unpacked, I went to Reynolds Memorial Hospital in Glendale, West Virginia. I went to the third floor. I walked into a room. And I held the hand of a man named Charlie Ray. And I said to him these words. I hated you when I was a boy. <laughs> but I've come today to say one thing to you. Thank you for teaching me how to pray. If it were not for you, I do not know where I would be. And I owe so much of my spiritual journey to a man who was relentless in getting a little boy to learn how to pray. Now, I don't know what a fancy lecture or an academic presentation would do for you, but I know what that story does for me every time I tell it. Because it really is about this journey that we're on together. It's a journey that's oftentimes uncomfortable. And there are things that we don't like about the journey. But when we have opportunity to be together, we have opportunity to reflect upon that journey and to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the living God is with us on that journey. Do I hear an amen in the church tonight? That is the way it is. Now, before we get into this uh, this uh, scripture and sermon tonight, I do want to give you I did want to give you a couple stories about uh, Maginot malaria. Um, several folks have asked today if I'd talk just a little bit about that, so I want to give you a couple stories, maybe uh, throughout the, our time together, to kind of weave uh, you into this uh, journey. I shared with the Maranatha class today why I do this work. Uh, I've got enough to do as a bishop of the church. Uh, let alone traveling all over the world for Imagine No Malaria, but I, I do it for a variety of reasons. I told the Sunday School class one of those stories today. I'll tell you two others tonight. Um, a few years ago, I had a chance to be in the Democratic Republic of Congo. What, an, uh, what a challenging place that is. And uh, we were there to do a net distribution, and that really is what Imagine No Malaria, the hallmark of this campaign, is to raise money for mosquito nets, which is the most proven effective way to deal with malaria on the continent at this point. And as I said to the class today, it's kind of a bridge to get us to a vaccine. Um, and so we're doing, that's really the hallmark of the $75 million campaign, of which we've raised $61 million so far. And uh, uh, I was in DRC Congo uh, a few years ago to do a net distribution, and so we landed in Kinshasa, and we, uh, we went, uh, we were welcomed in this big parade, and we went to the city square. And to my great surprise, in that city square were 100,000 Africans uh, to go, to gathered for this rally. And so uh, I had a chance, and I told the class today, my nickname in Africa is Mr. Malaria. I don't know whether I like that so much. <laughs> but that's what it is. 
So uh, I, it came time for me to speak, and I'm standing in front of these 100,000 people in this city square, and uh, this gentleman is right down in front of me, and he keeps staring at me while I'm talking, and it's very distracting, and he keeps staring at me, and he's waving this piece of paper, and, <clears throat> and the crowd is all kind of riled up while I'm talking, and, and this guy is trying to say something to me, and I tried to focus in on what he was saying, and this guy had this, what it was, was an old $2 bill. And he kept saying to me through my speech, I'll buy one. I'll buy one. Would you sell me one? He's talking about a net. Would you, would you sell me one? And the most humbling thing about that day for me was that I had 100,000 people that surprised me in a square and I had only brought, our team had only brought 15,000 mosquito nets. And so his plea was very genuine. I'll buy one. I'll buy one. They know that that's life-giving. And they are uh, at times somewhat desperate to get whatever they can in order to live a long, healthy, sustained life. Now, one of the reasons why I do this work and one of the reasons why I wear myself out going across the world is the fact that there are 15,000 nets in a community where there's a need for 100,000, and we can't stop until we get that job done. Because the underlying principle is this. Every one of God's children deserves to live a long, healthy, sustained life. Every one of God's children deserves that. And we as a church have that opportunity. And that's one of the reasons why I do this work. The other story I'd tell you about that trip to DRC Congo was that we went in our van to one of our United Methodist clinics. And I got out of the van, and again, I'm greeted. Uh, they know who I am. And uh, the, this, uh, this doctor says, uh, um, Mr. Malaria, come with me. And so I went into this room, <coughs> and there was this woman uh, huddled up in the corner of this clinic on the floor holding a baby. And I, I took me over to her, and she, she um, I still just can't hardly tell this story. She, she looked at me and she said, uh, uh, Mr. Malaria, um, pray for my baby. She has malaria. And it's, it's really humbling when you're just a simple guy from West Virginia and they tag this title onto your name called Bishop because in some parts of the world uh, it really does mean a whole lot. That title means a whole lot. And there are some unrealistic expectations attached to that title. And one of those outrageous expectations happened in that clinic because she said, you can heal my baby with your prayers. I prayed for that baby, and the next morning uh, when, I, when I woke up, um, I, I came out for breakfast, and Bishop Natumbo was there, and he said to me, I just thought maybe you needed to know that last night that baby died that you prayed for. Um, the title doesn't, doesn't guarantee a healing. Um, I have that baby and that mother's picture on my desk. And every day of my life, I pray that we in a country of great wealth and affluence 
might find a way to level the playing field so that babies who don't make it past age five because of the immunity system isn't uh, strong enough to withstand the bite of a mosquito, that somehow through our affluence and our wealth and our influence, uh, we can level the playing field so that all of God's children have that chance to live. See, that's the deal about United Methodism. It is about um, the spirit. It is about matters of the heart but it is also about matters of the body. And if we can get the body to a healthy place, then we've got our foot in the door to offer Jesus to the soul. And that is the comprehensive work of Imagine No Malaria. And I'd be happy to talk to any of you about that along the way. I'll give you a couple snippet stories as we're going along, and maybe we'll even have a chance for some Q&A about all that. But I invite you into the path of that journey to help make this world of ours a healthier place for all of God's children. Can I get an amen to that? Amen, amen to that. Would you uh, join me in prayer? God, we give you thanks for this night and for this opportunity to be together. We, uh, we like uh, Sunday night. It's uh, quiet and serene, and the choir's given us uh, a blessing of the heart, and it's just nice to see each other's faces. And it's good to think about what it means to be in church all day. God, you deserve that kind of praise. That your people might be devoted to you just enough to come out to be a part of an opportunity to once again praise you. Which is why we gather. It's not about us, it's about you. And we focus our attention on you in these moments. And pray that as we try to figure out how to make it through this complex life of ours, that you would just uh, gently touch us with reminders of your spirit, a spirit that promised us that you'd never leave us nor forsake us, a spirit that reminds us that in this journey we are not alone, but you walk with us. And so tonight, O oh God, we simply would pray that you would come and lay your hand upon us to meet the need wherever that need may exist in each individual here. And that as we explore your word tonight, we may indeed explore your will. And I pray, God, that in these moments, either through me or in spite of me, you might find a way to speak to all of us in this church tonight. This is our prayer in the name of Christ. Amen. The scriptures say that as Jesus walked along, he saw a man blind by birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am the world, in the world, I am the light of the world. When he said this, Jesus spat on the ground and made mud with saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Then he went and washed and came back, able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, It is he. 
Others were saying, no, but it's someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus, made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, well, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees that man who had been formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put mud on my eyes and then I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. He said, in my mind, he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we don't know how it was that he now sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, you ask him. So, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, I don't know whether he's a sinner. All I know is this. Though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've already told you, and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, Here is an astonishing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to the one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could not do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sin, and are you trying to teach us? And they drove him out. Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see, and those who do not see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, surely we're not blind, are we? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would not have sinned. 
But now that you say we see, your sin remains. This is the word of God for the people of God. Oh, that wasn't near as good as Sunday morning. <laughs> this is the word of God for the people of God. That's ah, much better. Thank you very much. Early in the 1940s, British uh, citizens and American citizens who were working in China were taken captive by the Japanese. Now, that was expected. What they didn't expect was what happened to their children during the internment. While the parents were in these uh, small one-room quarters, the teenagers of those parents became involved in illicit sexual behaviors in that confinement camp. Why? Well, as someone said, camp life was on the surface intensely dreary and boring. Nothing new, unusual, or really fun to do. The kids were bored. They were looking for something, anything exciting. Enter a man by the name of Eric Lydell. Eric Lydell had won the 440 in the 1920 Olympics, and he was a missionary to China. He, too, had been interned and was confined in that camp. And he became known for his overwhelming enthusiasm, humor, and love of life. Lydell took a problem and made it an opportunity. He initiated activities that drew those kids into a life that was focused and intentional. He did whatever it took. They built model boats. They took dance classes. They learned how to play chess. They did anything. He poured himself into those children and captured the hearts and minds of those under his care. Someone once wrote, It is rare that anyone has the good fortune to meet a saint. But Eric came as close to it as anyone I have ever known. He was making a difference. But then, Eric Lydell developed an unexpected brain tumor, and he died. And it threw the camp into great turmoil because they, they, they mourned the fact that they had someone who was making such a difference in their children, and they cried out to God why God would take away someone so vital as he. And they began to figure out, in a complex world, try to figure out, in a complex world, how to make sense of something that made no sense. But they remembered that Eric's faith enabled him to see life in an internment camp as a possibility of hope instead of a place of despair. He was able to see with eyes of faith. He was able to see with eyes of faith. Now, that's really why I've come tonight. That's really what I want to talk to you a little while about this evening. Nothing profound, nothing overly deep. Just ask you a simple question. How are you seeing tonight? W what are you seeing? And with what kind of eyes are you seeing? Stanley Hauerwas, the uh, ethics professor at Duke Divinity School, 
uh, says this one very simple line that's as profound as anything I've ever heard. Stanley once wrote, Christianity's goal is to teach us to see as God sees. Christianity's goal is to help us see as God sees. The impact of one man's life turned dead routines into new life in China. They began to see as God sees. Now that is what an alive, vital faith will do for all of us. It can heal the blindness of the soul. Clarity of vision. The key to wholeness in the spiritual life. Our ability to see through the muck to see through the confusion, to see through the unexpected, and to still in the process see as God sees. Only those who can see know where they're going. And as one once wrote so long ago, if you don't know where you're going, it doesn't matter what path you're going. It does matter. There's more than meets the eye. How do we begin to craft a life, a life that cannot in any conceivable way figure it all out. If you've got it figured out, and if you think that you've got God's will completely figured out, then please trade places with me. I'd love to hear from you. I don't know that we've got it figured out and don't know that we ever will. There's more than meets the eye. It's more than an event, more than a program, more than a group. It's more than, a, more than giving up something for Lent, which I've never really been a big fan of anyway. I'd like to put on something for Lent rather than giving something up. In a complex world, friends, it is very hard to see our way clear. And even more difficult to figure it out. Perhaps it could be argued, perhaps it could be argued that maybe, just maybe, we in this room are trying too hard. Maybe it is that we've, got, we've gotten so astute and so affluent that we think we can figure it out, this thing called life. And then things beset us, very much like an Eric Liddell's. You seem like, you're on, like it's going your way and things are going just fine and all of a sudden there's a curve that sets you back. There's an unexpected event. You, you, you feel like you've got it all together and then before you know it, something happens. Could it be that we're trying a little bit too hard to figure it out? And might it be an important time for us to just talk a little while about what it means to have faith? Faith in what we cannot see but embrace? When I went to western Pennsylvania ten years ago, those folks really had an agenda. I had never encountered a group of people like I encountered in western Pennsylvania as their new bishop. My gosh, everywhere I went, these people were just bent on one thing. Everywhere I went, they kept saying, Bishop, tell us your theme. Bishop, do you have a theme? Tell us your theme. What is your theme for your time with us, Bishop? Just lay it out there, Bishop. We want the vision of what you're going to do. What is your theme? Well, I feel sorry for the gentleman 
I don't know how many times it was asked, but I feel sorry for the guy who caught me on the wrong day. But he caught me on that day when he said, Bishop, tell me your theme. What is your theme for your time with us here in western Pennsylvania? And I pointed my finger at him and I said, I'll tell you exactly what my theme is. You ready? He said, yes, sir, I'm ready. I said, here's my theme. Lighten up, loosen up, and have a little fun. <laughs> now, little did I realize that 10 years later, wherever I go, there are people who say, lighten up, loosen up, and have a little fun. <laughs> but there's something to be said about that in the midst of this journey. How much of our time do we try to figure it all out when, when in fact, in fact, the most bold thing that we can do on this journey is to put it in the palm of God's hands and let the Lord have it. I don't know how many times, and I'm sure that David and Bill and Paul and others would affirm how many times we've been in a hospital room and we had no idea how to pray, no idea what the right words were. And with all the education that we've received to be groomed to serve churches like this fine church, with all that education, all we, needed, all we knew to do was to take hold of somebody's hand and say, God, we place this person in the palm of your hand and we trust in your good care for their lives because we didn't have the answers. But we believed in the one who did and we believe in the one who does it's like the man who went to a doctor complaining about a headache the guy had a constant headache he just he had to get it solved he went he went to the doctor to see about this nagging headache and and the doctor said uh, let me ask you a series of questions he said sir do, do you drink much liquor liquor the guy said I never touch it, and I despise those that do. How about smoking, sir? Do you smoke? No, I've never put a cigarette to my lips, and I despise those filthy things, and, and I frankly don't like anybody that smokes. I, uh, the doctor said, well, do you, do you stay out late, or do you eat fatty foods? And, and, the, doctor, and, the, and the guy said, well, I'm in bed by 10 o'clock every night, and I, as you can see, my body is fit as can be. Uh, and I, frankly, despise fat people. The doctor said, well, tell me, does this headache involve a sharp shooting kind of pain? The guy said, that's right, that's absolutely right. And the doctor said, well, it's simple, my dear man. Your problem is that your halo's on a bit too tight. Loosen it up just a little bit and learn to love others a little more and I'll bet you that your headache will go away. Now that's an exaggerated story. But the point is clear. Christianity is not designed to promote a halo effect that's filled with legalisms, pride, and alienation of other people. 
Christianity is designed for us to put our lives in the hands of one who can heal us from any affliction that we have, and it's designed as a result to bring us peace and joy no matter what life throws our way. There is a way through the dilemma that you face tonight because there is one that we worship in this place who will see us through. You find yourself saying, I don't like this group. I don't like the way I'm treated. Don't like this person's attitude. Don't like this program. Don't care for those people very much. In fact, I don't like this furniture. These chairs are uncomfortable. Lighten up. Lighten up and let the Lord get a hold of you. Let your faith bring you wholeness and peace. I mentioned to you at the beginning of the time this evening that my mentor in life was Bishop W. Kenneth Goodson. I didn't quite tell you the truth. I had two of them. The other one lived right next door to me when I was growing up at 112 Poplar Avenue. His name was Orville Bickerton. He was my grandfather. And when life got kind of tough in, uh, at 112 Poplar Avenue, and I didn't particularly care for what was going on in Jim and Marlene's house, I found a way across the yard to sit on the glider and have Orville teach me about Jesus. He was my spiritual mentor. You can imagine what a blow it was when I got the call that my grandfather had contracted leukemia and that he was in the hospital. He went through a, a, a short illness, but a very painful one. And I would spend as much time as I could traveling that five and a half hours between Shady Spring, West Virginia, and Moundsville, West Virginia, to visit my grandfather in those last um, days and months of his life. I remember one night going into the hospital. I walked into the, walked, got off the elevator and walked down the hallway, and I noticed a couple nurses who had come out of uh, his hospital room, and they were crying. And I said, putting on my best pastoral face, is everything okay? And, and the lady said, uh, your grandfather uh, is just, just amazing to us. He's helping us more than we're able to help him. And we feel so guilty about it. Well, I got into that hospital room, and I sat down in the still of the night that night, and I, said, I, I looked at him, and I said, Grandfather, how is it that you are able to have such a strong faith in the midst of what is your final chapter in life? You know you're going to die. How is it that you maintain this spirit in the midst of what you're going through? grandfather struggled to get a high school education but he gave me words that night that I've never forgotten he said to me grandson that's the easiest question ever, anyone's ever asked me he said I have been storing up my faith like grain in a silo I've been storing up my faith all of my life just for these moments I'm just drawing on the reserve. How's your silo look tonight? 
How much grain of faith are you storing up? No guarantee that the journey is going to be an easy one. In fact, I can almost guarantee you that there'll be something that'll beset you and challenge you along the way where you'll be called upon to have nothing else but faith. How's your silo tonight? None of us in this room are saints, to be sure. But we can be filled with a love and a grace that comes from our Lord. John chapter 4 that I read to you is the story of Jesus healing a blind man. And in this act, Jesus emphasizes how essential it is for us to have a vital faith in Jesus. This man finds his way because in Jesus' day, the life of a blind man was nothing but a life of ordeal. Each day represented the same routine over and over and over again. These blind people had to beg to eat. They were dressed in rags. They They hung out on the street they smelled horribly. They congregated in the city of life and in, in, in the center of the city and they struggled for life. And people said, Who sinned that these people were born blind? They were trying to figure it out. Surely, to goodness, those blind people have sinned because they can't see. They were trying to figure it out. And this guy by the name of Jesus came along and simply said, will you loosen your halo just a little bit? Just a little bit here. They did not sin. This is who they are. They were made for a reason. And God's works will be revealed in them. We read further in this story that Jesus made mud out of saliva. rubbed it in the man's eyes, asked him to go to the pool of Siloam, washed his face, and he could see. Now, can you imagine that story? Here, this Jesus guy is a carpenter. He's got calloused hands, and yet they're gentle and nimble, steady and creative, gentle and confident, strong, and sensitive hands that reached out and touched hands that invited and welcomed hands that restored and hands that healed the blind man can see because Jesus gave him sight that's a great story but the real story is in this room Could it be that we found our way to Boston Avenue Church on a Sunday night because in some way, whether consciously or subconsciously, we are searching for healing from our blindness? We, like a blind person, are trying to find our way through devout followers, courageous promoters of the faith, who when we're honest in the still of a Sunday night have our doubts and wonder how am I going to make it through? The temptation is to be like the Pharisees. You look at them. They they too were admirable people. They were devout followers of God. They were courageous promoters of Judaism. They tirelessly promoted the faith. 
but they were afraid. And their fear caused them to persecute the blind man because Jesus healed him. They tried to discredit the story because they couldn't figure out what they thought they had already figured out completely. But the man, in his simple faith, said, I don't know whether he's a sinner. All I know is that I was blind. And he helped me see. These Pharisees had good intentions, but a misguided spirituality. And you know what? It happens. Have you ever let your emotions or your insecurities short-circuit your reason or your ability to hear or see? I don't know about you, but when I'm blinded by fear or prejudice or insecurity or self-centeredness or uncertainty, which are all dilemmas in this complex world in which we live, I cannot see the forest for the trees. I don't know about you, but there are times when I really want it both ways. I really want to fuss and grumble and criticize and judge. I I have my own version of being a grumble butt. Thank you very much. And yet I still want to say I'm a Christian. I want it both ways. I I don't know about you. But there are times when I think I have 20-20 vision when it comes to the faults of others. But I sure can't see my own very well. This journey is tough. When he was a student in South Africa, Mahatma Gandhi became deeply interested in the Bible, especially the Sermon on the Mount. And he became convinced that Christianity was, in fact, one of the keys to making it through uh, the suffering that was happening in India. And he began to seriously pursue Christianity. One day, Mahatma Gandhi decided to go to church. When he got to the church, he was stopped at the entrance, and and a, a person said to him that if he wanted to attend church, he was very welcome to come and go to a church that was reserved for the blacks. Mahatma Gandhi left and never returned again. Several years ago, Howard Thurman, the distinguished uh, African-American Baptist pastor, had the privilege of visiting Mahatma Gandhi in India. And Thurman asked Gandhi one simple question. The question was this, what is the greatest obstacle preventing the spread of Christianity in India? And Gandhi said these words, this is the greatest enemy that Jesus Christ has in my country, not Hinduism, not Buddhism, or any other religion. The greatest enemy is Christianity itself. I think Mahatma Gandhi was simply saying, Christians, lighten up, loosen up, and have a little fun, a little faith. These are confusing times in this complex world in which we live. But there is one simple word in the midst of those complex times. That word is Jesus. The one who, by faith, 
will enable us to see that which we cannot see and embrace the possibilities even when the obstacles seem insurmountable. And it's that Jesus that is offered to you tonight. Because there is a need for healing in this place. You may have not have the strength to admit it. You may not even know it. But there's a need somewhere in your soul to embrace a faith that will help you make it through. A faith that will give you unconditional love. A faith that will give you sight in the midst of the confusion. A faith that will enable you to build relationships and bond with others that will surprise you. A faith that causes us to shout to the heavens like Paul said to the church at Ephesus that our God can do exceedingly, abundantly more than any of us in this room can ever dream of or imagine. All things are made new in this Jesus. Through His healing touch, we can see the good in others. We can find our way through the morass. And we can find strength enough to be vulnerable in the midst of the journey. I've told you some stories about going to Africa. I'll leave you tonight with this one. I was in a leper colony in Liberia in 1986. I got off the van. We were encountering some folks. And all of a sudden, this little short blind guy found his way to me. Now, when I say a little short blind, most people are short around me. <laughs> so I really don't know what his size was. But he, he took my hand and he said, thank you. And I said, uh, I haven't done anything for you. Why are you thanking me? And he said again, thank you. And I said, I don't understand why you're thanking me. And he said a third time, thank you. And I said, sir, you, may, you must have me mistaken for somebody else. I've done nothing for you. And he said, no, no. He said, you're a missionary from the United States, aren't you? I said, yes. He said, thank you. When you're a short-term visitor in Africa, that's what they call you. But I said, sir, I've just been here a couple days. I haven't done anything. And he said, you may not have, but your people did. Thank you. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, a long time ago, a missionary came to this part of Liberia and offered us Jesus. And if it wasn't for that missionary that came from your country, I would never know him as my Lord today. Thank you. And he said, I want you to see something. And he had a, a very worn Bible in his hands. And he opened it up and he said, would you read to me what's written on the first page? He'd done this often. I opened that Bible and on the front page it said these words to John. Never lose hope. Always keep the faith. Remember that Jesus loves you. And it was signed by a missionary in 1952. One day, Jesus rubbed mud in a blind man's eyes 
and he was able to see. Another day, a blind man exposed me to faith. And as a result, I could see. I wish I could see like that blind man. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.